1: Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. We're not doing a video episode this week, so you can't see it, but we are back in our sunny Southern California studios, which I am very happy about. We were in Turkey the past couple times for those of you who were uh, with us, um, which was great, but it is great to be back here with a real microphone, real computer setup and a real guest. Uh, and our topic today, before I introduce our guest, is the dangers of not fracking, the dangers of not fracking. Now, we hear all the time about the dangers of fracking, and, the, and we'll talk a little bit about what fracking is. We'll talk a lot about, it, about what it is. But this technology of hydraulic fracturing, which involves, among other things, using water uh, to fracture rock, to open it up to free oil and natural gas that otherwise couldn't be extracted— In the public consciousness, this is a technology that is defined in terms of its alleged negative, uh, especially the idea that it contaminates groundwater. And what's not focused on nearly enough, um, to say the least, is the positive of this. Leaving aside um, how fallacious those negatives are, um, what's ignored is, is how beneficial this is, how essential it is to life. And that's not something that has really been highlighted, Um except it's been highlighted by a few places. And one of those places has been the Center for Industrial Progress blog. And the person who's been highlighting it and our guest today is David Biederman, who is a researcher for CIP and also works in the oil industry and and, um, studies it quite deeply, is is very helpful in my own research whenever I have a question um, about any kind of petroleum or gas uh, issue. So David's been writing a series of articles, uh, which you should definitely check out at industrialprogress.net, and I thought I'd bring him on the show to uh, tell us about the role of fracking in our economy. So first things first, uh, David, welcome. Oh,
0: thank you, Alex. Good to hear from you. Um, so I should give a, a quick segue here just in case people hear running water or heavy breathing. I am hiking in the mountains of Colorado right now. So uh, if I seem to be either overly excited or I need a breather after I say something, that would be the reason.
1: Yeah, actually, uh, I have to interject there. Uh, David is sometimes just overly excited when he talks about oil, as am I, uh, <laughs> arguably. And and as long as we're giving the full picture, he is in Ure, Colorado, which is the inspiration for uh, Galt's Gulch in Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, which anyone who listens to this show knows is a uh, must read, according uh, to the show. So we're going to forgive him his heavy breathing because he is in an inspirational uh, paradise. But All right, let's get into fracking, and and let's start with this. If if anyone has noticed this on our site or noticed this in the literature, there are two different ways of spelling fracking. One is F-R-A-C-K-I-N-G, which I tend to use for certain reasons, Um, but David Biederman and generally people in the oil industry refuse to spell it that way. They'll either spell it F-R-A-C-I-N-G or F-R-A-C-apostrophe-I-N-G. So, Dave, what's the deal with that?
0: Oh, well, it was just, shortened from fracturing. You know, imagine a gentleman with a Texas draw, who was fracturing, say, back in uh, say the 50s, 60s, and whatnot, and he just wanted to shorten. He didn't want to say, "Well, we just hydraulically recompleted this well. We hydraulically fractured it." He'd say, "In a wonderful draw, well been fracked, we're fracking right now." And uh, so it's just a short name for fracturing, which is funny because you do do hear often. Um, someone will say, "You know, that article is written by." someone who spells fracturing with a K um because it is sort of a, a heads up that this person may be so new that they're just using spell check and or they may not in fact know anything about the industry and they're just spelling fracking with a K. Or of course in other cases they can't get by editors and that's that's <laughs> that, that's how it's spelled. But but yeah, it, it's just a shorthand for fracturing. So the idea that it now has to correspond to the rules of the English language is uh Pretty interesting. It's a it's a good sort of sniff test of whether or not the person has any experience in the industry.
1: Yeah. So you have this, uh, and and what I do, I have this weird uh, decision to make every time I write an email. If it's to someone in the oil industry, I'll do frac apostrophe. Uh, but if it's to someone in the mainstream who doesn't know about this distinction or how much it rankles people in the oil industry, I just use FRA uh, CK since we shorten lots of things with CK. And, um, but anyway, that, I just thought you guys would find that to be an in- interesting tidbit. Um, it's kind of like turbine and turbine. Like I used to say turbine, and I was taught that that is unacceptable in the energy industry. So I now say turbine, even though it is not my. Uh, Even though, you know, it reminds me of a a headdress. Um, Right. So one thing you mentioned is a good segue into the broader subject here. And you mentioned the 50s and 60s with fracking. Now, most people associate fracking with recent developments. And it's thought of, well, this is a new and experimental technology that whether they they might have a sense that it's big, they might think it's little, but there's this idea of it's new, it's experimental, it's it's untested, uh, and thus they tend to think, well, it couldn't possibly be, you know, that big a part of our current production. So give us a little historical overview about how long this technology has been around. Um, well, let's start with that.
0: Okay, well, as far as how long it's been around, the first sort of experimental Uh, Wells were done by Amaco, I believe, in 1947, but the first commercial was 1949, Halliburton. Uh, We completed some verticals, and sort of crossing Portland Creek here. Um, What is instrumental, and why fracking had been used for so long, is in the vertical wells, you would either complete them or recomplete them by uh, pressuring them up with uh, high volumes of water, and initially... You would just crack and open tiny fissures or fractures in the rock, and you could get gas to flow. What is absolutely sort of astonishing and and interesting when you see people make commentaries nowadays is, you know, back in, say, late 70s, early 80s in Colorado, they were actually doing incredible research on hydraulic fracturing where they would fracture a well, and then they would go out and they would take cores and drill samples all around the area to actually see what the rock looks like beneath the surface to see what the fracture had actually done to it. So they would essentially, you know, using coring, they would mine out those samples, and they would look at it, and they, they analyzed. They had a whole area where they were doing this, you know, 30 years ago, 30-plus years ago, and 50 years prior, that's how we recompleted and completed gas wells, and so they would not die, and so that so they could that? produce productively.
1: Let me, let me jump in for those who aren't familiar with this terminology. What, is, what does complete and recomplete mean?
0: Oh, okay. Well, initially... Yeah, this is something that's funny. People often will read in the media, you know, this drilling technology, hydraulic fracturing, Well, absolutely has nothing to do with drilling. If you're drilling a water well, you're you're drilling a horizontal well to run electrical cables, you know, under a bridge or under a river. I mean, the, drilling is where you you put a hole in the ground and then you will put some sort of pipe and cement and casing into that well in order to, so you have a stabilized wellbore. Completing is when you come in after and you have a fracture engineer, a completions engineer, and they determine how what they should do with this open wellbore in order to make it productive, in order to to best um, liberate the hydrocarbons from the surface and allow them to flow to the surface. So that would be what a, a completions engineer. Or a okay, wait.
1: Next, ne- ne- let me jump in again. Explain what a wellbore is.
0: A wellbore. Okay. Well, and when you have a drill bit. Um, pick any uh any you know diameter um it's going to drill through the surface of the ground uh in order to initially get you know pick your depth of your formation or prior to formation of uh thousands of feet and the bore is where you have steel casing and concrete multiple layers of that and uh that is the center sort of like a a gun barrel where uh and uh, it's pipe really where you have contact to the reservoir, which is thousands of feet below the surface because you need to segregate that, uh, from the surrounding formation because you don't want to produce, you know, salt water, ancient, you know, sea waters from millions of years ago that were down there. You, and you want to make sure you can get all of your oil and gas to flow to the surface without having any rubble in it and rocks and whatnot. So you create this bore with a steel casing and concrete. It's called a well bore. And that is what a, what a drilling engineer does. And then a the completions or a recompletion just means we're trying to figure out how to best stimulate this reservoir, this rock uh, deep below the surface, so that it will allow hydrocarbons to flow. And then recompletion is what um, hydraulic fracturing has been predominantly for many years, for 50-plus <laughs> years, uh, is where people would you know basically live in the same area their whole life, and they would go around to these vertical wells that were producing gas, possibly all, well, and in, they would go back into them and refracture them. So, by opening, by pressuring up the area where of rock that was producing, by pressuring it up with uh, water, you're able to open tiny fissures and fractures in the rock where you could get, you know, a couple sand drains in to prop it open. And you could allow, you could uh, sort of rejuvenate these wells and they would begin flowing again or flowing at rates that were economic. Because if not, the natural reservoir pressure wouldn't be enough to overcome the tiny, tiny, tiny. Um, holes and pores in the the rock that oil actually lives in. So okay, so
1: so I want to I want to just keep. I think it's really important um, just for people in general to know on a very. And just a very specific level, like where you can actually have a picture in your mind how this this stuff works, because it's too easy to talk about, you know, fracking or wellhead, wellbore, all of these things. Of course, in the industry, once everyone knows it, it it's essential to just, you know, to, to breeze through things, because every time you talk about drilling, you can't say, hey, remember what a drill is? It does this and does that, because it's unnecessary. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to kind of ask, keep asking naive questions, that uh, most of which I, I know the answer to because I study it. But think it's important for people to get. So let's let's deal with this issue of a reservoir. I think the image that often we're given with oil and how it exists is that it exists in a like a literal pool. There's kind of a swimming pool of oil underneath. And what the oil industry does is it drills a hole and then it sucks it out with a straw and that's pretty easy and they get paid lots and lots of money and then do all this other bad stuff. I think that's pretty much the summary. Uh, but let's let's focus on the pool. Is there is how does oil actually exist underground, and and to what extent is the straw a, a proper analogy?
0: Well, I guess I'll start with straw, just because it it's making me laugh. <laughs> uh, the idea that you can put uh, something on suction is, is is ludicrous. I mean, that deep below the earth, in order to to somehow put a vacuum on something, say 5,000 feet below the earth or uh, 11,000 foot lateral, Uh, what you're actually relying on is the the weight of the rock um, above the surface compressing fluids that are thousands and thousands and thousands of feet below the surface inside, um, tiny, tiny little holes which measure uh, on on the micron scale and, and, and a little bigger. And so that that is what you necessarily need. If you don't have any reservoir pressure, if there's not a the weight of the rock and the volume of hydrocarbons is not such that the pressure of the rock will actually force the fluid all the way up the wellbore, then you actually have pumps which will go down and lift the fluid to the surface. So suction doesn't happen at all. But I know I've I've heard that quite often. It's a pretty uh, interesting idea. As if we have vacuum cleaners hooked up all over the surface, which is pretty pretty ludicrous, uh, scientifically. Um, now, as far as reservoirs, uh, I think that's what really needs to sort of be understood, for instance, of something like a horizontal drilling right now and gas shale formations. We have, we're producing out of shales that have gas trapped in them in uh, pore sizes on, on the, the, the nanometer scale. So we're talking about tiny little holes in rocks that are, have the diameter of viruses. That's all. That's how big they are. And trapped inside those is tiny um, volumes of gas. And so the idea that that's a giant pool is, is farcical. If you're driving down a, a mountain um, side where, like I've been doing through Colorado here, and you see these mountain cuts and, you know, you know that's a sandstone and you look out at the sandstone and it seems like solid rock, that's what the oil and gas industry produces out of us. And, and, you know, through measurements, we can determine how big the porosity is, which is the, the sort of the, the ratio of these tiny little holes to the to the bulk rock there, and as well as the permeability, which is the ability for hydrocarbons to flow through these pore spaces. Whether or not you have this interconnected porosity, whether you actually have you know, sort of tunnels of connected porosity, or whether they're unconnected, which they are in shales, which is why we frack them. Um, so I'm, I'm, is that clear
1: enough? Yeah, let's just let's just keep going forward with it. So let, let's let's start out with I don't know if you know this example precisely, but so in 1859 we've got, you know, Colonel Drake with the first American oil well. Of course there's one in 1858 right. in Canada that all Canadians like to point to. But and oil strength. Yeah, okay. But, but let's let's take the American one cuz you know America's better. Uh, just kidding, Canadians, including Biederman. Um so, so, anyway, let's. So, what is so this issue of pumping? So, Drake is is he using a straw?
0: No, no so he's had, seventy
1: feet underground. He's like the simplest thing, right? Just just the simplest no. kind of well. What What is the mechanism by which he's doing it? And then I want to work our way up to hydraulic fracturing.
0: Well, initially, if we're talking about spindle top. Which I believe is what we're talking about. No, 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 no,
1: no, no, no. Spindletop is in Texas. This is, we're talking about, Ah. this is in uh, Titusville, Pennsylvania. This is in 1859. Spindletop is near the turn of the century.
0: Okay. So, no, I do not know the specific example, but there is never, there cannot, there won't be suction. Um, The reason you won't put suction on the well uh, is that the lowest you can reduce the pressure of a surrounding area to is zero. But if you have weight of a fluid, so take your hydrocarbons, multiply it by um, the sort of uh, area and the amount that's there, you're going to end up with more pressure, this uh, force per unit area, uh, pushing down on the uh, energy below, the pressure sort of below that's trying to bring it to the surface. So even at zero pressure, the weight of the fluid can't be overcome by the the weight of the reservoir energy and since you can't go to negative pressure suction has no no ability to be to to produce hydrocarbons
1: so then it's, so it's what, the pushing down right of the so is it the oil pushing down on the oil
0: yeah the weight of, of the fluid so oil and water because water generally comes up with oil so oil and water on top in this column in this well bore, we have this uh, a volume of oil and water in a column, and it's pressing down. It's, it's the weight of water. So even by reducing the the pressure at surface to zero, so there's no pressure of the air, the um, fluid at the bottom only has the pressure of the reservoir to overcome all that weight. Alex, I think this would do better with a diagram when I think about this.
1: Well, yeah, that's okay. So, but, but I mean... I still think it's. I think still think it's helpful for me. What I just want to. What I was getting to was that I, I like challenging this idea all the time that oil is a natural resource, and the straw kind of feeds into that because it's just. Well, it's just. This, it's super easy, right? You just drill a hole, you suck it out, uh, just like you know. You wouldn't say, "Oh, it's that hard to if I, the cup of water I am drinking if I use a straw." Yeah, the, what's involved in that? And what we're getting at here is um, no, it requires on these. It requires these certain mechanisms and what I, I was kind of flo- going to was that initially, just even once you learn how to drill, you can only recover a very small amount of the oil in a reservoir. And then what we get to is we can progressively recover more and more and more with things like pumping steam down there, pumping water down there. Um, and then let's jump ahead to hydraulic fracturing, which is where you're... you're uh, and also we can over time deal with we can refine new kinds of oil that were useless before, like what they called skunk oil, high sulfur oil. Um, but then we get to things like oil sands and um, and f- fracturing where either they couldn't get any oil out of it or gas out of it or it's prohibitively expensive. And we're taking this, quote-unquote, natural resource, which is really just a raw material um, that isn't naturally geared to give itself to us and to be useful. And by breaking it open in this way – with um, you know this ingenious technology as well as other related ingenious technologies we can now treat this totally unusable energy into usable so that's what i just want people to get at so what we're ta- i think, I think nice. a lot of it was clear what you were saying but i think the most important thing is is just that people get this is a very difficult process nature doesn't just give us this stuff we have to understand the mechanisms and then you know nature to be commanded must be obeyed and and we need to understand the nature of things and then to command it is a very big achievement
0: okay well that's okay that's fantastic now that I know the sort of direction I'll be able to take it okay a,
1: so, take it. so so now let's 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 jump to the issue because we're talking about the dangers of not uh, fracking I want people to get just and over time, we'll do this more and more with different technologies. But I like people to get a physical sense, so I think that that was helpful with that. But so this is a new technology. In your article, fracking, amazing, which is on the website, you talk about how these there's this intersection of of two technologies, um, hydraulic fracturing, which is this breaking open of the rock, which was where you couldn't previously get the material or the the hydrocarbon, and now you break it open so it's more like a conventional rock. It's more accessible. You also talk about the issue of horizontal drilling. What is horizontal drilling and why is it so important?
0: So horizontal drilling is exactly what it sounds like. Um, If you can imagine sort of a a stationary... uh, something on surface that you're used to, like a, a highway. Now, what what happens when you need to get cables underneath this highway? Well, we we will drill a well down the, you know, multiple feet that is necessary so the way the highway doesn't crush it. Then the bit will turn and it'll go on an angle and it'll come straight underneath the highway and then it'll come back up to the surface and, you know, they'll put a piece of PCB down there and they'll run cables through their electrical wires. So this is sort of a... Normal practice, really near the surface. Now, what the enormous breakthrough with horizontal drilling in the oil and gas industry is that by using mud motors where they can put high volumes of drilling mud down a drill string, and it'll, it'll turn a motor, uh, motor that'll actually drill. Sorry, you have to, to, to you have to
1: explain what drilling mud is. That, that I know it's really common in industry, but I don't think most people know it.
0: Oh, well, drilling mud actually... Uh, is interesting in in the case that when they were originally using it in Texas, well, at first it it has three purposes. So you put mud down on your bit, which is you know drilling and breaking up hard, dense rock below the surface. It'll cool the bit so that it doesn't heat heat up and melt and plastically deform. Um, it'll also, if they have it through nozzles at a decent enough pressure, it can actually uh, help to break up the the surface a bit, and then it'll also help carry the cuttings to the surface, because if you just try to drill straight through solid rock, and you just have a mill turning, it'll just keep grinding up this rock, and it'll just make a paste, basically, drying it to finer and finer quantities. Now, if you take mud, which is generally essentially just bentonite, and the reason it was called mud, that historically in Texas, they would just have a bunch of water, and they would walk the cows back and forth through it, and then they would scoop up this mud, and they would uh, put it into their pumps and put it down the well. Um, it will help carry the cuttings or the tiny pieces of rock that is broken up and uh, sheared out of the rock, out of out of this well bore, and it'll carry it to the surface because it's thicker, it's more viscous. So I guess an easy example would be if you had something thick like honey, and you drop something in it, it'll fall very slowly through this honey. And that's the same idea with drilling mud. So you just have a bentonite clay, and uh, you mix it with water. And under high pressure, when you force it down the uh, the drill string, it'll come back up the annulus of, of between the drill string and the wellbore, and it'll carry all your cuttings to the surface, which, mean, which then you can get them out of the hole and drink deeper. The other sort of uh, huge benefit and necessity of drilling mud is if you run into an area that has enormous amounts of pressure existing below the surface which is pressure is coming from the weight of the rock pushing down on tiny 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 uh holes which are containing fluids. so these fluids can't move because they're trapped in rock and the weight of the rock is pushing down on them uh that's creating a pressure if you break into that pressure it can race to the surface and that's when you have a blowout and that's why they'll have drilling mud at all different weights in order to make sure they can overcome that pressure from the surface so it doesn't come up and uh, spill out on the ground. It doesn't possibly cause an explosion or damage. So that's the other sort of primary use of drilling mud.
1: Got it. All right. So let's get back to horizontal drilling and how you were mentioning a certain innovation related to drilling mud.
0: Well, one of them, there's, there's multiple ways to uh, drill horizontally, but the one I had mentioned was a mud motor. And it's the idea of, Uh, without getting into the mechanics, pushing uh, or forcing this fluid, this drilling mud, down the center of a drill collar and having a bit at the end. And the velocity that the fluid goes through uh, is able to turn a bit, and so therefore you're powering the bit. The benefit of that is you don't have to turn all the string like you would normally do from surface, like like a screwdriver turning it around. All you do is you have just the bit Basically, at the end of this long drill string, it's able to turn, and you don't have to turn the entire string all the way to the surface, thousands and thousands of feet. With that advance, then you're able to guide uh, the string in the direction you want it to go, um, the drill string in the direction you want it to go, and the mud motor can still uh, spin and drill in that direction. So, what this gives, well, what many of these inventions give uh, the industry the ability to do now is to go. Uh, straight down thousands of feet and then slowly turn, you know, a few, uh, few degrees every uh, 100 feet and turn on an angle until they're eventually going horizontally straight below the surface. Um, and by going, like, horizontal or parallel to the, to the surface of the ground, they can guide themselves through formations, uh, oil-bearing rock, so they can increase the contacts to the oil-bearing rock. So you had a formation that was 250 or 300 to 400 feet thick. Historically, you could only access that thickness, its vertical height. You could only an, uh, access that by drilling vertically through it. But now if you can go diagonally and then eventually go horizontal, you can enter that 250 feet of thickness and go horizontally as long as your wellbore will, will, will go. So you can increase your well bore contact to this oil bearing formation instead of say 250, 300, 400 feet, you can increase it uh, a half a mile or a mile of you know, of contact with these uh, high organic content shales and carbonates and whatnot.
1: So let's um, now I recommend again the article um, of David's fracking amazing because it has got a good uh, diagram. But let me let me see. If I have this right, so the way I envision it in my mind is just um, a rectangle that is very short in height and very long in width. So let's say that rectangle contains something conventional like gold, and it's very deep. Let's say it's five thousand feet or ten thousand feet beneath the se- the surface. It would be really, really difficult, you know, to if you only had vertical technology, you'd have to go through. 5,000 feet of rock, and then you get to the gold, and then you mine whatever vertical chunk you can reach in that session. And then you have to do it the next, and the next, and then you have to do it no- You have to go horizontally X number of feet, and then drill another vertical one, and then drill another vertical one. Um, and the problem is, you keep coming in contact with all this rock, which is not at all your purpose. Whereas if you can drill horizontally, essentially, you only need to come into the contact with the rock once, and then the rest of it is, it's just gold, 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 gold as far as the eye can see because these are very horizontal formations. So the reason horizontal drilling is so valuable here is because the formations are horizontal. Is that accurate?
0: That's actually a fantastic example because when they're prospecting for gold, what do they do? They take rigs out and they'll drill core samples, and they'll go around. They'll drill a hole to the ground, pull it up, so they can get an idea of the vertical vertical section of of a fix, of, of a uh, uh, formation and the amount, uh, the grade of the rock, the amount of uh, uh, gold that's in there, silver, nitrogen, and whatnot. But that there's, they would not mind that at all. They cut open sections and shafts. They can drive tra- uh, trucks right into them because it's you know, the most economic way. You could drill thousands and thousands of <laughs> well, to pull up gold. It's, it's a very good example. of that.
1: Okay, so we've got we've got this technology and. Which is just unlocking um, a very, very large amount of oil and gas. Give us the historical development and then the, the the present development in terms of amount that this produces. And just to to give an indicator, in some of your recent articles, you've given some really interesting statistics about how much of our oil and gas comes from hydraulic fracturing, and it's much more than I thought. And I think. I think much more than most people would think.
0: Currently, of all our recent wealth, uh, ninety-five percent of the recent oil and gas wells are hydraulically fracked.
1: Wait, wait, wait. hold on. I, I want to pause on that. Ninety-five percent, because the way it's portrayed in Gasland is there's just a lot of new stuff that shouldn't be allowed, but and it's not going to have a significant impact on you know, the price of gasoline or anything like that
0: yeah it 's interesting when you see something like that or you read certain articles. People seem to be coming about that the visscus was something that just happened today we' just now hydraulically fracturing. But this is how you stimulate a reservoir. This is how you open it up. It is the dominant stimulation technology. This is how fluids are liberated from the rock so that they can flow. Um, nature as such, other than you know these rare oil seeps we had in. I mean, they still exist in places like Kazakhstan and whatnot, but these are where you can't get the amount of hydrocarbons. You want thousands of feet below the surface without creating highways and you know, uh, pathways in the earth for it to flow through. The pressure just isn't great enough and you don't have enough surface area. So, yeah, the, it is the most dominant uh, stimulation technology, bar none. The idea that you could just sort of remove that, choose something else or carry on, is, I mean, it's absurd. It makes no sense. To remove it would be to crush the industry and take an enormous amount of our production away. I believe it's 30% of the uh, Energy Information Association uh, just estimated 30% of our hydrocarbon resources in the United States are dependent upon hydraulic fracturing to even be accessed. So they can't be accessed if you don't use hydraulic fracturing. So I- anywhere...
1: Oh, let, sure. me, let me just jump in. I, I thought, so what I take it is that this technology is so valuable that even with a, a well or a reservoir that you could access by other techniques, it's enhanced by hydraulic fracturing. That's why it's used now for just about everything. Is that
0: right? Well, it's a stimulation technology. So there's a lot of wells that maybe today would produce a barrel a day, two barrels a day, which is completely uneconomic in millions of dollars a well. You can't you can't make your money back, there's no value in it. If you can go down there and hydraulically fracture it, it turns into a, you know, four hundred barrel plus uh well uh barrels of oil a day. So, I mean it's a stimulation technology, that's what it is. And uh the idea that you can <laughs> work without it in the industry, I mean it's just patently absurd. It's it's taking away wood from construction. Or I guess it's a tool, so <laughs> or cement. Away, yeah, or or even it's a tool. It's just saying, okay, you can you can build that, but uh, you're not allowed to use hammers. You're not allowed to use saws, and you're not <laughs> not allowed to use any heavy equipment to move things. It's got to be all with your hands. It's like, well, you realize I'm be building scrapers then, right? You know, like it's it's absurd.
1: And of course, with the construction analogy, we're dealing with the form of energy that powers construction. So it's it's that much more. Uh, ironic. So to say you can't use oil is to say you can't build things.
0: Well, yeah, how are you going to, I mean, that's one of the uh, enormous things of the Industrial Revolution is, of course, the steam power originally, but they were turning fire into energy. They were burning coal and whatnot and able to say, you know, you don't have to lift this with your hands. You don't have to move this with your hands. We're not limited by the amount of power that a human body has. We can now use hydraulics. We can now use the power of, uh, of, of uh, hydrocarbons.
1: So in your own work in the industry, presumably you're involved with projects that involve fracking. You're not working on these sort of assumed massive numbers of projects that have nothing to do with fracking.
0: Uh, no, yeah. I got to I gotta remember the perspective that, that exists out there. And no, I, I think it really needs to be repeated that. Other than old existing wells, which may be under like a water flood or a CO2 flood, where we're pushing energy down there and washing up the oil and gas, you know, by forcing pressure. Other than that, you're not drilling new wells if you're not fracturing them. I mean, you can't. It's a stimulation technology. It's necessary to make these wells flow. They won't flow. You need to add energy. You need to put these fluid corridors, these highways, for oil and gas to connect and flow down. If you don't, you just have a useful hole in the ground.
1: So since since you are in the industry and and most people I don't think have much of a sense of what what goes on what is what kind of ingenuity and thinking and other things go into um fracking a new well you mentioned that a new well will cost millions of dollars what's what's just a schematic or an outline of some of the progression of turning you know turning basically nothing or turning this that 's doing nothing in the ground into usable oil
0: let me think so the first thing I think is really interesting is because of horizontal drilling you'll have a pad now of wells, so a surface pad, which will have say you know five or ten or two uh, well heads on them on the surface, and you'll have a drilling rig, and there'll be you know ten to feet apart these well heads, and from each one you'll drill straight down and then you'll drill. In another direction. So the idea is to plan it such as you have this very, very minimum surface impact, where you can, you know, access enormous amounts of of uh, subsurface. So, for instance, in one example, if we take something like a, uh, a 5 wall pad, you can from starting at this small, small surface area where these wells are just tens of feet apart. It's beginning to thunderstorm out here. So if it sounds like i'm in one that's what i'm in um yeah, they'll go straight down and they will go half a mile or a mile in any di- any direction in order to access the subsurface so in this tiny little plot on the surface we now have five wells each going say a mile horizontally under the ground so you've accessed five miles in one direction plus the uh direction on either side of the well that they can access the reservoirs through hydraulic fracturing and on the surface you just have this tiny little pad so that sort of logistics and how best can we, you know, the way the geology works, the way the surface works, is there are, uh, a mountain there, is there a school there, is there a highway, so we're going to drill far away but drill under it, you know, there, all this sort of logistics makes it so they have very, very minimum impact where people will see five tiny little wellheads and will have no idea we've actually accessed, you know, uh, miles and miles underneath the subsurface. Of course, uh, another Huge implication because the media, um, because everyone lives on this land, is uh, they want to minimize uh, the possibility of any contamination that could come from a spill, and that could come from um, any sort of accident that happened with a truck tipping over and, and dumping fluids. And
1: so routes are planned
0: meticulously. You know, every every morning there's a, a conversation between the group a safety meeting it's called and uh, we'll talk about all the potential hazards what could happen what to look out for everyone who's responsible for each job will discuss exactly what the the impacts to people could be because the bottom line is you don't want to hurt anyone you want to come back and see each other at work tomorrow and you want to make sure there's uh, as little uh impact on the surface as possible and uh
1: with that said. Well, let me, let me ask, let me ask a question about that. Um, I think that often it's very easy to demonize people. I think it's just a general rule. It's easy to demonize people who are in a field that one isn't in. So those people who have no involvement in the oil industry or haven't studied it, have this idea that the people who work in the oil industry are somehow fundamentally different and that they get up, and that the prospect of, say, ruining someone's land or killing them, even or killing the workers they work with, is somehow benign in their mind, and that they are just sort of ruthlessly going ahead to, you know, stick whatever they can in the ground, to extract whatever they can as quickly as possible and move on. Discuss the actual psychology of the people that. You've worked with, but just more broadly, your knowledge of the industry in general with regard to these issues.
0: That's a really incredible distinction because I I find that really maddening. Where you'll go and you'll sit in an office and you'll talk to people who have lived in an area, you know, they've been fracturing wells for thirty years, and they're looking at you know thousands of wells that they have planned in an area. They're developing it, you know, one of these new shale plays. They'll be redeveloping. These new areas of exploration, they're you know, thinking long term how best to situate the new wells based on what's going on on the surface, um, what the geology says, how much the money's involved. And meanwhile, of course, at the same time, they'll be talking about where they live right now, um, uh, where their kid's going to school, whether they should move if there's a better high school, this sort of thing, because they have to plan it. If you drill, you know, a few hundred wells a year, one company, or, you know, less, and you have thousands of wells planned, well, that's a long term. Strategy. I mean, these are enormously long-term. And then you read in the paper, it seems to be some sort of idea that it's a take the money and run. You go, you drill a well, and then you get it all. But these wells produced for you know tens of of, of years. You know, there's wells that do have produced for quote, you know 90 plus years. So these are very long-term strategies. When you talk to anyone who's working in the industry, they're thinking the same thing anyone else is thinking. Oh, I have to raise my kids you know am i staying late today because i got to pick so-and-so up from stalker or you know, daycare and so then the idea that these people aren't just as connected to the land in fact even more so because they're designing surface leases they're developing the subsurface uh the idea that they're not connected is is really a huge insult imagine you know someone who spent you know thirty thirty 30 years in a region as a say a completions engineer or you know a landman or anything along those lines and uh They've watched the whole area develop. They've watched farmers who, you know, or had tough economic times that they were fortunate enough to get a few wells on the land and now, you know, they have that guaranteed income coming in those income streams. They know the people, they shake hands, they talk about whether they can put hay bales up to lower noise at a certain area when the trucks are driving through. Um, they know when the parades or the the uh the uh you know, the school routes or the schools are in session when there's community events. So you make sure if you're going to be working in a certain area that you drill around it. They sponsor the communities in the areas that they are. They have to build up the roads because they need their trucks to go down the road. So they have to build on them. You know, they pay for the schools when they're looking for donations. They'll fund, you know, 50 or 100% of firework demonstrations and all this, all this sort of thing because they live there, they work there, and they develop it. So it's incredibly hypocritical and insulting. When you, when you read something like that and, and you look over at people who are doing the same job as you know a farmer, a farmer is pulling and producing, um, using nutrients and, and fertilizers in order to develop land and produce you know, the food that you eat, and an engineer is going subsurface to uh, develop and produce fuel <laughs> to, to, to fuel civilization. I mean, it's on the order of something like 60, or I think it's 88% of hydrocarbons fuel the U.S., but it's on the order of 60% is oil and gas, so 60% of the energy is being produced by this. And then there's this immediate vilification, however. So that is a, that is a narrative that, I mean, I don't understand the psychology of someone who's sort of vicious like that and, and, and projects that onto another person, but that, that is a narrative that's, that's really untrue and really insulting and, you have thousands of people employed with the company. That's thousands of people who have children who all go to school. You know, who have the same interest in the land and, and as anyone else. They just develop the subsurface versus you know someone who develops the surface or just someone who just uses that energy for any other purpose. So I mean, it's a really virtuous field. I shouldn't I shouldn't get on in this too much because I start to get well. I know uh, I think no, I know <laughs> really
1: I, I, I appreciate it. and I think uh, listeners will as well because we don't hear enough of that. Outrage from the oil industry, and I think there's a couple of dynamics going on. One, which I mentioned, is just the the, the tendency of people to, um, or just the it's easier to demonize or caricature something that is distant. I mean, if 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 people were working with these guys directly, it would be more difficult to do. And then in the absence of, of specific interaction, one of the defaults is to look at what is the moral view and the culture of the profession as such. And here we have a profession that's defined as um, you know, a polluter as its essence and uh, you know, at best a necessary evil. And what happens with necessary evils is people keep hoping and eventually thinking they start thinking that it, well, it's not necessary, you know, to have this this evil and the perspective that no this is in fact good you know this is a a real positive and what these people do is amazing because they're taking something useless and they're making it into something into the best kind of fuel you know in the world and that that makes all of our life possible and everything you look at around you is in some way or another um the the product or better because of oil and gas That's obviously what CIP is about: is making industrial progress, the improvement of the of our environment through science and energy and technology, our cultural ideal. Instead of minimizing our impact on environment as as the cultural ideal, because if that's that's the ideal, well then, well this is making a big impact. Even if people will say, well it's not impacting the surface, people say, yeah, but you're drilling underground and you're wreaking all kinds of havoc, and this is not what Mother Nature meant, and. Et cetera, et cetera, whereas if we realize no, this is Mother Nature didn't mean anything, there's no mother nature like with a purpose, um there's just human beings who can choose whether they want to live and flourish or whether they want to suffer and die, and that the people who choose to live and flourish are exemplified by um and represented by the oil industry, then it's it's a very different perspective.
0: Well, I mean that's right now I'm being stormed on incredibly because I'm in the mountains with a cell phone that I'm able to speak with you on. And I have really no worries, because I know when I hike myself out of this mountain, I'm going to go in, I'm going to have my natural gas-fueled hot shower, I'm going to clean all the mud and the muck off me, I'm going to be warm, there's going to be food that is shipped into the mountains, because guess what, they don't grow fruit, (laughs) absurd stuff out here. I'm going to have great food, lots of protein, I'm going to relax in my warm, cool place, so I don't have to worry about being stuck out in this storm. And the idea that energy is fundamental to all of that. Everything is being
1: brought in from it. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's impossible to think about stuff like that too much um, for a couple of reasons. One is that it it's just so important in shaping one's thinking when all of these policy issues comes out. But I think another is just that it makes life much more enjoyable to understand what it depends on. People often talk about a shallow... Uh, materialistic civilization and the element of truth to that is that if you don't understand the mental and spiritual component and origin of the material then you just sort of view it as like wow the world is just handing me a bunch of stuff and the kind of it's easy to use it mindlessly and to to just not to not really derive enjoyment of it but if one Even something like, uh, you know, even a trash bag. I would say that I get quite a bit of enjoyment most of the time when I'll throw away my garbage because I know what this means. I know how much my life is more secure because I have a plastic trash bag that can insulate me from the disease and the dirt and everything else that is, um, you know, inherent in waste, you know, that we need to dispose of, let alone a place like a hospital, which, you know, is is a potential biohazard all the time in the absence of modern uh, petroleum technology. So these these physical things become uh, become very very uh, very very meaningful. So that's hopefully one benefit that that people get by listening to this show and and by learning about these issues um, more broadly. Now. Uh, we got to wrap up in a minute or two. let us We're going to talk about this in a future show um, uh, with another guest that I mentioned in the past who's like a world authority on this issue, but I want to just touch on a little bit the element of safety. Now, part of the context for this now is that this is a, a longstanding technique, although it's obviously evolving in exciting ways with, which opens up new possibilities. What is the track record of hydraulic fracturing with regard to groundwater?
0: Well, there has been no cases out of uh, 2,000 fracture completions that have happened, but those have been, you know, recompleted on wells and not and But So that's one, one million two hundred thousand wells that have been fractured, and there hasn't been one single case of groundwater contamination from fractures. And that is an interesting uh, statistic to know, and to, you know, even read that when regu- regulators are challenged on it. For them to have to admit, well, no, of course, we can't actually find an instance of this occurring. Uh, because it seems to be folklore that it does exist. And it is, again, really insulting when you see engineers who have worked you know, hydraulic fracturing for 30-plus years. They love it. This is their you know, 10, 12-plus hours a day, calls a night, they work weekends. They love it. They're so cognizant of safety because you know, you're dealing with, like any industry, high-pressure machinery. Um, lots of heavy moving parts they don't want to get damaged they don't want any of their, their men to get damaged and uh, their personnel and they of course don't want to cause any environmental issues and they haven't so to suddenly have to see that sort of huge contrast of this fallacy these sort of vicious lies that are that are, are sent out to the industry about safety when there is actually zero facts regarding it it really just shows more of a, of a fear of technology and a and uh, And an unwillingness to actually do serious work to uh, see whether or not something is safe or not uh, this is i mean but this is <laughs> I won't segue too much, but I think this is the same sort of thing that comes up with any new medical technology or or anything. Some people will use it for its life enhancing qualities, and other people will just immediately say, "Well, that's not good I mean, I shouldn't take medicine because i uh, it was natural for me to have organ failure and die or it was <laughs> so i, I yeah, or for so other, thought, I mean, if you're yeah.
1: talking about something that that you think affects other people, you know, the person on one side of the transaction, let's say with an FDA disapproved drug that a person judges might be able to save his life, it's easy for someone else to say, well, it's too risky, and you know, if we let people do this in general, some you know people make mistakes, and it's kind of easy to say that from afar. It's more difficult to say um, when it's your own life. Although some people do unfortunately, take it completely consistently, and they. some people even let their children die because they they have this idea that you shouldn't do the, quote, unnatural. Now, that's really the I I don't think we should allow the term natural to be uh, misappropriate in such a way because human nature, which is definitely part of nature, and the most important part of nature is to do things exactly like hydraulic fracturing to you know, convert and mold nature uh, so that it serves our purposes so that instead of, you know, having four out of five of our children die, uh, we can almost make infant mortality extinct, Uh, just to take one example. Now, with the safety issue, I I should just add, again, I think it should be in late July we'll have on a guest, and we'll really get into this, including the claims of movies like Gasland, and then look at... What can actually go wrong because certainly things can go wrong um with you know with an oil well, just like anything else We'll look at that and then to what extent are things being misattributed to fracking et cetera but um might well, I was going to say something, but let me let me just as a final point, David, so sum up for us what are the dangers of not fracking
0: well the the dangers of not fracking uh is essentially to. To stunt and eliminate human life, you're going to have to choose uh, who will not have access to energy and who will not have access to the, the petrochemical industry because since hydraulic fracturing is responsible for you know, 95% of our current wells and 60 to 80%, uh, depending whose measure you use, of our wells that exist now need to be hydraulic fractured in the future to make the me- maintain their, their economics, when you have 60% just in the U.S. of uh, our oil and gas production is dependent upon that. To cut that out is to cut out, uh, I can do the math in my head real simply, let's just say 25 plus percent of the energy consumption. How, wh- what is going to replace that? Who, you know, who are you going to tell that 25 percent of the cost of fertilizer, of powering your hospitals, of all the plastics, of all your transportation, who, who, what is going to replace that? The, the answer is nothing right now. I mean, there's, so to, to, cut, to cut hydraulic fracturing is to cripple the industry and thereby cripple humanity. Uh, I mean, that sounds like such a you know, a huge statement, but if you look at areas in, in Europe where they don't have private property rights and the, they're looking at, at banning fracturing or not even allowing it to occur because there is an outrage because people don't have hydraulic fracturing, well, their, their gas prices and their oil prices and their food, everything is so much more expensive because energy is so much more expensive. But they depend, and they, you know, they rely on the Middle East, and they rely on the U.S. and Canada, and, and Venezuela, and nations that still produce. So, if you cut out the lifeblood of civilization, you're you're, <laughs> you're cutting out humanity's ability to survive, and that's a that's a uh, an enormous an enormous commitment to make uh, to say that I'm going to take out your ability to survive as a species. I mean, it's it's, it's terrifying that that people would even suggest
1: doing it so i think that's that's a good point to end on i'll just i'll just add that so the with all of these things we've got this real fundamental alternative this fundamental choice and it can be really good uh or really bad now of course people can try to straddle it but that just means you're either um you're compromising how positive you get or you're letting yourself get quite negative and it's not shouldn't be too much satisfaction that, you know, you're not sort of having an instant, uh, complete devastation. You're only having a partial devastation because even if we look at our current economy, very few people would argue that's a happy state of affairs. And that's, that's a happier state of affairs than than has existed in most of, of, uh, of human history. So there's, there's such an upside here. Uh, so much more resources are, are being produced and and really created and this is new technology that has so much potential to not only revolutionize this country's production, but all around the world. And since it's a global market, that that means lower prices in general, uh, more productivity in general, more new innovations. Uh, so it's just, it's such an upside. And I think what I take away from this show is how important it is to understand and value these technologies. Because if we don't, we can have something that is so essential uh, as fracking and for people not even to know what it is, not know how it works, and not know how how major a part of their existing life, let alone their future it is. So on that note, uh, it's time to wrap up the show. Um, as always, we always want feedback. So if you have uh, love mail, hate mail, praise, criticism, suggestions, email me at alex at industrial progress.net that's alex at industrial progress.net uh check out our facebook pages facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy and facebook.com slash industrial uh progress next week we'll be back with a new topic a new guest so stay tuned and i will talk to you then uh until then I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy.
0: Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.